So 11,000 days, a beautiful struggle. And we've talked about a lot of cool things that your story matters and has redemptive value. And God is truly for you. And we've talked how Jesus plus nothing equals completion. We've also talked about how this grace of God is a concept that even though we love it, we'll never touch bottom and totally understand it. Obstacles are what you see when you take your eyes off your goal. The unscripted life is the only one worth living. Here's one I want to hit you with out of the gate today. Adversity is a gift from God that can develop deeper maturation and growth in your journey. Adversity is a gift from God that can be used by him to develop so much more depth and growth and maturation in your journey. The word adversity is an interesting word. It means uh, an event that happens that appears to oppose success. So when people talk about going through an adverse time, what they probably got in mind is what success or what outcome they thought should happen uh, for them. Adversity is something that opposes that. Another word uh, definition would be this. Adversity is to uh, encounter hardship. Now, here's what I know about every person I'm speaking to here today. Every person in this room, no matter what your age, no matter what your gender No matter what your ethnicity is, here's what I know about you. Every person in this room has experienced hardship and has had what they prescribed as their dreams or goals. They've had opposition in it. They've been hindered in the process. Anybody in the room like that? So Paul writes in Romans 5, starting in verse 1, he makes this statement. He said, Having been justified by faith, justified, having been declared righteous by God because of faith, the persuasion of belief through repenting of our sin and placing our faith and confidence in Jesus, he says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus our Lord. He goes on to say in verse 2, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What do you rejoice in? We rejoice in this hope and the glory of God. Now he starts to break it down. We also rejoice in our tribulation. Now, this is the one we've got to get that ties back into the James 1. Rejoice in your tribulation. Rejoice in your adversity. Rejoice in your conflict. Rejoice in your tension. Rejoice when this hardship comes your way. Paul goes, I've learned how to rejoice in this. Now, the majority of what is written, as we find in the epistle writings, was written while he was in jail and he was beaten for declaring that there is a resurrection and Jesus was really Yeshua. So when he writes this, he's writing from personal experience, not as some distant author that just kind of thought it would be something cool to pen. All right? So rejoice in tribulation. Notice what he says. Tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance is one of those words where you say, man, I, 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 I didn't know that I had the ability to really trust Christ at this level to continue to endure in the midst of the affliction that I'm going through. You will never learn how to persevere if you do not have tribulation and trouble and adversity. And what he's saying right here is, I've learned perseverance. It's a gift just like tribulation because I had to press into the Lord and really trust his strength and not mine. We rejoice in tribulation. We rejoice in perseverance Because it brings about proven character. 
My character gets cleaned up and proven and established and solidified according to who I am in Christ. And a lot of things get knocked off the plate in the process of saying, that's corrupt character. That's not clean. When you go through these trials and adversity, you have to persevere. God starts to clean it up. And then he says, proven character leads to hope. How many people want to walk in hope? How do you get to hope? You get to hope by going through the fire. And we're going to break this down in more detail. Now, one of the things we've established over these last weeks is your story matters. And about a year ago, I was standing back in the back meeting people that were visiting for the first time. And my buddy Matt Humphreys uh, came up with his wife, Erin. Come on, Matt. And Matt came up and introduced himself. And Matt said, this is our first Sunday here, but it's not our first Sunday of paying attention of really what's going on. We just moved here from just outside of Detroit in Michigan, and uh, we had pulled up the sermons. We were really praying about where to fellowship once we landed here, and uh, this is our first Sunday here. And then he came back the next week, and then he came back the next week, and he and his beautiful wife, Erin, and their three daughters have been with us for the last year. So we started getting to know each other. And uh, as we started talking just about this whole uh, journey that we've been on, I I was like, Matt, what I'm talking about that week, brother, I would love for you to share some of your story. So give it up for Matt Humphreys as he shares a little bit with us this morning. Thank you, Pastor. Good morning, church. Hey, my story is a story of uh, perseverance and faithfulness, godly character, But that wasn't on my part. Those adjectives describe my Savior, Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6 says that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it to the day of Jesus Christ. Amen? Max Licato said that worship is the thank you that cannot be silenced. And today my worship, I'm offering up my thanks to my Lord and Savior for what he's done in my life. And this is my story. I was born um, into a Christian household. My parents served the Lord in ministry. They were um, church planners. They met and married in Bible college. They were church planners. And they um, started a church in Kentucky. And shortly after starting that church, they felt a call to go on the mission field. And so they packed up and left and moved to Adelaide, Australia. I joke with people when they tell me that, you know, I'm a Yankee. I was actually born in South Australia, and I lived part of my life in Kentucky, So I'm really a southerner by birth. And I lived, when I was in Michigan, I lived in Southfield. So still had the South going on there. So my parents moved to Australia. They started a a work there, a church and a training facility for for ministers. And um, my brother and I, I'm the second of four children. My brother and I were born in Australia. And then as a baby, my parents moved back to America and bounced around just a little bit. I grew up part of my life in Kentucky and um, the rest of my childhood in in Michigan. Um, I came to Christ at a very young age. I still remember contemplating some of the truth of Scripture and talking to my parents when I was still in elementary school and shared with my mom my desire to follow Christ. We knelt down beside the bed and prayed, and um, not too long after that, my father baptized me. And it's a wonderful memory that I have, and I'm so thankful for the godly heritage that they, they instilled in a they instilled in us the firm foundation of Christ. They had a, a household that honored God, and they had hearts for ministry and for people. And I am profoundly thankful for that. 
I always tried to color inside the lines. I had perfect attendance all through school, all the way through the 12th grade. I think the only time I missed was when I had chicken pox. And um, in 11th grade, I started a Bible study that went uh, my junior and senior year of high school. Myself and another young lady who was a Christian, we started a Bible study in our school. And uh, so as the middle child, often trying to be the peacemaker and coloring in inside the lines, uh, I started uh, kind of thinking that I had this life figured out. And, um, you know, the, the, the struggle there is a lot of times for those of us who have had such a great foundation and uh, second, third uh, generation Christ followers, um, sometimes you can start to use that as a form of righteousness that the scripture says ultimately is filthy rags. So by my, um, I, I entered a Bible college, and by my junior year, uh, at 21, I married. And, um, you know, trying to be that good boy again, I thought that it was all figured out. Now, some folks in here might struggle with that good boy um, mentality, that good boy framework, a good girl framework. Um, you like to color outside the lines, and you struggle staying within the bounds. And my encouragement to you would be this. When you have had a confrontation with Jesus Christ... If you struggle to color inside the lines, if you want to walk on the wild side, walk with Christ and boldly declare him and see what type of a ride you go on once you do that. So shortly after getting married at 21, it was within seven to 10 days of that marriage that uh, there were some cracks that started to show. So the week, a week into marriage, as I was headed back to Bible college to finish my junior year, um, and going into my senior year, there were major problems within the household. And um, ultimately, I graduated from, from college and moved back to Michigan. I went to college in Springfield, Missouri, moved back to Michigan to work with my family in the construction business. And I know the uh, off-color language that I use and my large physique gave that away that I was in construction, right? Um, and I worked with my father for, for 10 years there. Um, but a, a marriage that, that was... Uh, Ultimately, I was married for nine years, and it was uh, throughout that marriage, off and on for nine years, we were in and out of a lot of counseling, and, um, and ultimately, ultimately, some of those um, struggles started to, to surface, and uh, very few people knew that I was going through some of those personal struggles, um, but I just want to say I remember quite clearly just bowing my head and just recommitting the business that I was a part of to the Lord recommitting my marriage that was struggling to the Lord and myself to the Lord and just saying, I'm yours, do whatever you want with it. And I was working for a family, Steve and Trish Ho, um, doing some work for them in their home. They had just uh, bought a brand new home and wanted us to go in and renovate it. And um, shortly after that prayer of submission, uh, the bottom fell out and I went into a free fall. And it ultimately became one of the deepest, darkest, uh, most hurtful uh, painful times in my life. And some of you here today can relate to that. You've had significant losses. Maybe you've been betrayed. Uh, maybe some of the things that you set up uh, failed. And uh, you struggle with that because of the image that it brings on you. I had a tremendous amount of struggle, and I didn't tell a lot of people because it doesn't look too good sometimes for the preacher's boy for his life to be falling apart and the Bible college kid for his marriage to be failing. And the person who was trying to do business by the books um, for everything to be falling apart. But it did. I was breaking and broken. And it was at that point in my life that I had nothing to offer. You know, sometimes when you have things and then you add Christ to it, 
it's hard to tell that you only have Christ. One of the wonderful things when you, when you come to Christ, when you, when you enter the Christian faith and start on this journey is, is that you encounter a person in Jesus Christ, which is so different from other religions of this world and other faith paths that you can choose to go on. You encounter a person. And you know, it was great that I grew up in the household that I did, but God's desire is not for us just to be good boys and good girls, but it's to be godly men and godly women whose hearts are submitted fully to his plans. And it was at that point of brokenness when everything around me was failing and there was, I had lost all hope that, I, that, that depression and anxiety sunk, sunk in deeply. And I sat and I contemplated just ending my life. I contemplated suicide for quite some time. And it was in those deep, dark days that some loving folks came around me, three families in particular. Many others would come through the years, um, but three families in particular. And that's one of the beautiful things about having a church that has a sweet spirit of unity is that you have a safe place to share your hurts and your struggles, knowing that Christ is honored in that place. And so we're thankful that that is what's trying to be protected at our church as well, because in that environment, as a young man who was struggling, Jeremy and April, Scott and Terry, and Joe and Lori stepped up and came to my side, and they provided literally food, clothing, and shelter for me, and they started speaking truth to me. And the Lord used them to start rescuing me from the pit that I was in. And about that time um, in life, the, the Lord had brought a passage in Psalms and gave me some encouragement from it. And uh, even though I didn't believe it at the time that I was reading it, the Lord just continued to bring me back to a passage in, Psalm, in Psalms. And he started a restoration work. Now the marriage ultimately ended. And the, the business was able to get a little bit more traction, so I'm thankful for that. And along the, along the way, several years after the marriage ended, uh, I was blessed to have an opportunity to renovate a condo. And um, it was during that job that I ultimately met um, the love of my life, the, the one that God would lead me to marry. And so I got the job, and I got the girl. <laughs> Amen. And uh, my father and I worked together, and I often tell people that my dad fell in love with Erin long before I ever did because he just couldn't say enough good things about her. Even when I wanted nothing to do with relationships, my dad would continue to talk about Erin and uh, just the godly woman. The godly, the godly woman that she is and that she's becoming. And he's blessed us with three lovely children, and uh, we're so thankful for our three little girls and for this family of faith that he has brought us to. And we serve, we serve a good God. We serve an awesome God. And I'll read to you the passage of scripture that the Lord used to encourage my heart in those times when I had nothing to offer him and completely and fully surrendered. And some of you are here today. You're in that place. And my, my encouragement for you to do today is just surrender. You have nothing to offer Christ Psalm 40 says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he turned to me, and he heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire, and he set my feet on a rock. He gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many people will see it in fear and put their trust in the Lord. 
Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who doesn't look to the proud or to those that turn aside to false gods. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders that you've done. The things that you've planned for us, no one can recount to you. Were I to tell of them all, there would be too many to declare. Pastor titled this sermon series, 11,000 Days, A Beautiful Journey, A Beautiful Struggle. And for some in this room, we've traveled a little bit more than 11,000 days. Others, maybe not quite as long. But for some of you here today, this could be your first day. Amen. Great job. It's a phenomenal story. Every story matters in this room. And every story has redemptive value. Matt, thanks for sharing, brother. Thank you so much. Adversity is a gift that can develop deeper maturation and growth. Here's the second thing I want to share with you. Scars are not a sign of imperfection. They're mere evidence that healing has taken place. All of us have been cut and sliced in the journey. All of us have some rip marks in our physical body as well as our soul, as well as mentally, as well as emotionally. But when I look back on those scars, they're not a reminder of what injury happened. They're a reminder of how good Jehovah Rapha is to bring about healing even in the midst of adversity, Trevor. You got to tell somebody your story. God is good. One of my favorite passages, Philippians 1, verse 29. Here's a cool thing. A lot of people memorize Philippians 1, 6, as Matt said. A lot of people will memorize Philippians 1, 21. A lot of people will remember a lot of these kind of Philippians 4, 13s and 4, 19s. There's not a lot of people highlighting Philippians 1, 29, and it's for a reason. But listen to what he says. For to you... It has been granted for Christ's sake. For Christ's sake is a key phrase in here. For Christ's sake, it has been granted to you not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his name's sake. Did you get that? Not only have you been granted the privilege to believe, believe in the Greek means to be persuaded to action, but you've also been granted that privilege to suffer for his name's sake. A lot of us love to drink out of the cup of believing. In the cup of believing, oftentimes we look at it and we love the blessings that the cup of believing has. When you believe, you're you're almost given this introduction into the faith. And all of a sudden you go, man, because of this great God and because I now believe and not a demon in hell can scratch my name out of the book of life, I'm going to spend eternity with God. And we go, man, I like drinking that cup of believing. We start to look at that cup and we go, man, look at all the blessings. He said, now because of the spirit, I have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. This stuff wants to manifest. Man, I love drinking out of the cup of believing. But for so many people, for so many people, that's where you stop. When Paul says, no, 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 no. Not only have you been granted the privilege through the awakening of the Holy Spirit that drew you to a place to trust God, you've also been granted the privilege to suffer on his behalf. What what are you talking about? You've been granted the privilege to go through brokenness. You've been granted the privilege to go through adverse situations where you have to press into it. You see, a lot of us love the cup of believing because it costs Jesus everything and it costs us nothing. But the cup of suffering costs us something. 
uh, something. When we start to identify with Christ and move deeper into this walk, you're going to go through hardship. You're going to be insulted. You will have attacks. You will be at times possibly persecuted. You may even become a martyr for your faith. Paul would later write in Philippians 3 that I might know him. Oh, that sounds good, Paul. But I want to know him in the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering. And a lot of us, when we start to go through those adverse times, we throw the towel in because we've concluded that I like that Jesus that allows me to believe in him and drink from that cup of all the good stuff. But I don't want the Jesus who says I've got to suffer. Where we mistake it is here. When you really start to understand it and and really start to walk with the king, there's really not two cups. It's really just one cup. The cup that he's called us to drink out of when we really come to faith in Jesus is a cup of believing and suffering. And, 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 And when we start to identify with Christ and we realize, hey, you want to do something in me, but you can't do something in me until you break me down a little bit. You can have all this seminary training. You can have all this Bible college training, as Matt said. But all of a sudden, when the fires start to happen in your world, what do you do with them? Let me, let me break this thought down. So adversity, adversity is a gift. Paul said it this way in 1 Timothy. He said, fight the good fight of faith. He said, I want you to fight the good fight of faith, which literally in the Greek, it translates agonize. In the good agony, well. Which means choose to struggle in a struggling way, fueled by the power and person of the Holy Spirit, so that you can move toward more of this godly shaping that God wants to do in you. Make sense? Agonize in the agony, well. Choose to embrace suffering and adversity as a gift. I've got five things right here. One, God allows adversity, God allows adversity so that he can be glorified. Oftentimes when you go through the fire and the trial and the temptation and the pain, he goes, this is for my glory. Martha and Mary looked at Jesus and said, if you would have been here, my brother Lazarus, I mean, you love the dude, he wouldn't have died. And Jesus says, y'all are missing it. All of this happened for the glory of of God. Even the story where he says uh, regarding the boy who was born blind, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he's uh, in this condition? And Jesus said, y'all are missing the point. This all happened for the glory of God. Sometimes when we go through those fires, what we're asking for is God to remove us from them. And what we should be praying is for God to reveal himself in the midst of them. He goes, I, I, I want to be glorified here, but you, you're not going to experience the glory, which is some of this awesome attribute and magnificence of God if you run from this conflict is for my glory. So we should embrace these heartaches. We should embrace these struggles. God allows, number two, adversity so that he can mold us into his image. Romans 8, 29 says, those he foreknew, he also predestined to conform and mold them into the image of God. Here's something interesting. Here's something very interesting. How many people would say, I want to be molded into the image of God, into the image of Christ? Let me see your hand. 
A lot of us say we want to be molded into the likeness and the image of Christ, but most of us deep down inside just don't want it to hurt too bad. So when God puts you as a piece of clay and starts to mold you and shape you on that potter's wheel, the reason a lot of us have not experienced any deeper growth is is like, well, I I didn't know it was going to hurt that bad. I want you to mold me, but I just don't want to have any pain. Pain is a part of life. Pain is a gift. Pain allows you to know something ain't right. Third thing, God allows adversity so we will rely on him. When do you rely on God the most? Paul said again in 2 Corinthians 12, I prayed three times that this thorn would be removed, this affliction would be removed, and God said, my grace is sufficient. My strength is really manifested the most in the midst of your weakness. What he was saying is, Paul, I'm not going to bail you out of your pain. It's in the midst of your suffering that you have to really trust me. Matt said that in his testimony Man, I really had to get to a place where Jesus was all I really had. You ever been there? You ever find yourself praying that God would remove whatever you're going through? And he goes, no, no, no. I want you to get to know me. I want you to trust me. I want to walk with you. But if I excuse this stuff from you right now, you're not going to stay with it. Here's another one. God allows adversity so that we will seek him above all else. Have you ever noticed that you pray more sincerely and you pray more fervently and you pray more often when you're going through adversity? When you've got heartache, when you've got things coming your way, when do you really press into the Lord the most? Oh, God, I gotta have you now. And he's not some cosmic Santa that we run to and sit on his knee that's gonna bail us out and give us what we want. He's a holy God that says, I love you but I'll never be able to use you until I bruise you and break you to the point where I'm totally alive in you. God allows adversity so that we can help others. 2 Corinthians 1 says, the comfort that you received in the midst of your affliction was not just for you. I want you now to go out and comfort others who are being afflicted with the same comfort that I've given you, which means you're not to be You're not to be this dead sea. You're to be a distribution house. When God does something in you, it's to do something really through you so that others can become the recipient of his blessing. I want you to get this. Adversity is a gift. And scars are not a sign of imperfection, but they're mere evidence that healing has taken place. I'm going to jump to number four. Here's something else I've learned in this journey. I've learned that no matter what you do, you can't make everybody happy. Any people pleasers in the house? You ever tried to please everybody else and get everybody else to like you? I've mentioned the last few weeks, the guy that put his arm around me basically as a mentor, Walter and his wife, Deborah. First time he's ever been to church here. Drove up from Noonan this morning. My mentor, my hero, my apostle Paul in my life. But I remember as a young believer, he looked at me and he said, if you're motivated by praise, you'll be deflated by criticism. Anchor in Jesus. Make sure that you don't become an an addict of approval. What are you saying? Paul said in Galatians 1.10, am I seeking the approval of man or am I seeking the approval of God? If I was seeking man's approval, 
I couldn't be a servant of Jesus Christ. What, what, what are you saying? Who are you addicted to? Are you addicted to the horizontal friendships or are you really addicted to Jesus? Where does your identity, where does your acceptance and your love and your worth and your security, and where does all this value that God has placed within you, where does it come from? It comes from you. So what's your ultimate aim in life? To worship you, to glorify you, to walk with you, to know you. What are you saying? You can't make everybody happy. Education. So twice since I've been pastor at this church, I've had to ask people to be removed. Okay? Now, one, that's a hard thing to have to ask someone to be removed. But based on Matthew 18, based on Galatians 6, and based on 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 14, God lays out in Scripture kind of how to handle divisive, disruptive personalities. Matthew 18 says, go to the person one-on-one. We did that. He says, then take two or more with you. We, we, we did that. And so when you go to a person and you say, hey, this is what's going on, and you get to Matthew 18 at the end where he says, if they don't repent, you got to treat them as a pagan and tax collector. That's a hard place to get. But there's five things that God has taught me even when it comes to dealing with conflicts such as that. One is what you're doing for the glory of God. You've incorporated 1 Corinthians 5, Galatians 6, Matthew 18. Are you doing this for the glory of God? Yes. Two, are you doing it in love? Meaning love is doing that which is most redemptive for the other person. Yes. Three, are you doing it for the good of the other person? Meaning is there a place to repent and be restored if they desire to repent? Yes. Are you doing it based on Ephesians 4 to preserve the unity of the spirit? Yes. And number five, are you doing it to protect the body of Christ at large? Yes. So when you do that, let me, you following me? Very few churches will have like church discipline, really. But when when you really want to have a a body that glorifies the, the Lord, and you want to walk in the pure flowing of the Holy Spirit, there are certain things that have to happen. Here's the thing. If you're attached to an outcome, you will lose passion of the process, and you will forfeit the principles of God if you're not careful. If you're not attached to an outcome, meaning your response is not going to determine how we deal with things here, what are you doing? We're all about the process of following what God has laid out. When you do it that way, guess what happens? You might not be liked. You may be booed. You may be slandered. You may be criticized. But when you do it in a spirit of agape for the betterment of the person, for the glory of God, it makes sense. What's your point? My point is, as I said, that no matter what you do, no matter how you do it, you're not going to be liked by everybody. And if you've got a need to be liked by everybody, you're not going to be a good servant of Christ. Here's the last point. The line in following Jesus is one deep. The line in following Jesus is one deep. So when I responded to the gospel 11,000 days ago, and I got on my face and I was praying and crying out, God save me, and Walter puts his arm around me and quotes 1 John 1, 9 and says, do you believe that? Yes. 
Yes. God never told me to follow Walter, who was following his wife, Deborah, who was following Jesus. He said, Tim, you come and follow me. And the problem, as Matt said, even with second and third and fourth generation kind of faith households, is that so many kids grow up thinking they can live on barred convictions and hand-me-downs. And so they've never experienced this incredible awakening in their soul where they've had the encounter with Jesus. They're still trying to live in the shadow of someone else that had an encounter with Jesus. You did such a great job last week, Amanda, sharing your story because what you basically said in your story was you reached the point where you surrendered to Jesus and the line in following Jesus became one deep for you. I've got to follow Jesus. And if we ever get this concept down, it is a personal relationship. Not a private relationship. A lot of times people will say that, well, hey, hey, it's a personal relationship. No, you're a closet Christian, you need to come out of hiding. It's a personal relationship with responsibilities and assignments that God gives us. What have you learned? I've learned that God desires to see you follow him. When Jesus said, come and follow me, what he was saying is, I believe in you. And I believe you've got what it takes to be just like me. Come and hang with me. And every disciple that followed the rabbi had one major goal. He wanted to be like the rabbi. When Rabbi Jesus comes and offers us that invitation, the ultimate goal. Listen how crazy this is. People in the South will oftentimes use this phrase. Well, yeah, man, I trusted Jesus as my Savior. Okay? The word Savior appears about 30-something times in the Bible. The word Lord appears over 7,000 times in the Bible. There has been more people disturbed in their walk with Christ because they prayed a prayer and they never became a disciple. When you become a disciple, Jesus Christ becomes Lord, which means he becomes the ruler, the authority, the master, the controller, and he calls the shots. You cannot meet him as Savior and not meet him as Lord. But if you do meet him as Lord, you've met him as Savior. So I pray that you know him. And if you haven't, I would highly encourage you, cry out to Jesus even while I pray here in a few moments. In your own, just in your own words and say, I want to start that first day with you today. 